All righty. So it's just tipped over to the top of the hour by Mike Gluck. Uh, my name's Bonnie, and I'll be moderating today's call. And I'd like to welcome everybody to the Community Matters Conference call focused on Strong Town, Strong Futures. Uh, these calls are brought to us today with a huge thank you to the good folks at the Orton Family Foundation as a way to connect really great people and great ideas across the country. Today we're talking about strong towns and strong futures with Chuck Marone, the president of Strong Towns. And we're really looking for a, a great, engaging and energizing conversation today. So I'm going to ask people um, just uh, to, to put themselves on mute as we get started. But then after Chuck's done his introduction, we'll be uh, asking people to take themselves off mute. I'll be asking some questions and going through the Google Docs that we have available for you to take note. We've also added in a whole lot of questions that you've already sent through, so thank you for that. And so if I, I do call your name, please um, take yourself off mute and uh, and get ready to chat. We really do want this to be a, a great conversation. But in the meantime, if you would, please put yourself on mute. Um, we don't want to drown everyone out with background noise. Quite a few people on the call today, so if, uh, if we all make an effort to do that, including the person I can hear making a bit of noise right now, um, then everyone will be, uh, be able to hear. So we also, like I said, we have the Google Doc available for everyone to take notes and ask questions. If you would like to ask a question, please type it into the document and add your name to the question at the end, and then I, I can call on you to ask your question and join join the conversation. So, like I said, I can still hear a couple of people that haven't put themselves on mute yet. So if you could just check that before we get started, um, otherwise we'll get drowned out with a bunch of background noise. And uh, like I said, when we when we get to the question time, please don't hesitate to speak up and, and often. Um, this is a really great chance to have a great chat with uh, one of the people that are doing some terrific things uh, in local economies and local towns. So with that, I'll hand over to Charles Maroon to give an introduction. Thank you. And thank you, Bonnie, and, and thank you to... Uh, Rebecca and the Orton Foundation, too, for, for putting this call together. Um, I was asked at first to, to talk about Thoughts on Strong Towns, which is the book that uh, I put out in August. And I, I think that's maybe a good place to start, and then I'll just chat briefly about Strong Towns, the, the philosophy and the concept and what we are doing here to move that ahead. Uh, the, I've been writing a blog for the last four years, and the blog really started out kind of as an, an exploration for me to kind of learn some things. You know, there's this kind of adage that uh, if you want to be intellectually inquisitive, you should journal. And I, I was never one who was into journaling. But I, I really wanted to write a book, and I wanted to uh, uh, kind of organize my thoughts around things that I saw going on. And I said to myself, well, if, if I can be disciplined enough to write three times a week, uh, just, you know, a little bit, three times a week, uh, let me see where that takes me. And four years later, uh, I am working on this larger book, which I'll, I'll talk about here in a second. But, you know, we have this Strong Towns movement, which has really grown uh, beyond anything that I ever either intended or anticipated. And that's been very, you know, gratifying for me uh, and the others now that have kind of joined with and, and helped to make this all possible. 
the book that I just put out is actually a collection of essays. And there's three reasons why I did the book or chose to do the book at this time. The, the first reason is that there's a lot of people who just don't read blogs. It's not their thing. It's not their format for reading. They, they don't get their news or their information that way. Uh, and people were coming to the site, you know, kind of wandering through saying, you know, where's the essence of this? And so we, we really thought that by putting, if we call it the best of, or some of the essays uh, that we thought had the most resonance into a, a book, it would be a way to reach a, a broader audience. Um, the second thing is just uh, in terms of people that were coming to the site and saying, you know, wow, I just found this. Uh, now I see you have all this information. You know, give me a, a, an overview. You know, what's the highlights I need to know? And so by putting this together, we essentially are trying to get people kind of caught up to speed quickly. Uh, the book kind of covers uh, a, a lot of the important points that, um, you know, we've tried to communicate over the last few years. And so it's kind of a highlight, kind of a, kind of a 101 intro to Strong Town's thinking. And then the third reason is maybe a, a, a bit more personal or a bit more kind of consistent with our, the philosophy that we've developed here, which is experiment small and plan big. Uh, the idea that you know, little, little, little steps and little innovation should lead to something bigger, and, and you'll know it will if it's successful. And so the blog has led to this book. Uh, but the idea of this book is kind of to lead to this bigger book project that I've been working on for some time now. I've been trying to wrap a story about America and a story about growth and development and prosperity around the observations that I've had in my own town and my own neighborhood. And in bringing that book project forward kind of through the traditional routes, uh, I've just run into from a publishing standpoint, a, a lot of just constraints that, and I, I hate to use this word because I am an engineer at heart, uh, a bunch of constraints that artistically uh, I just wasn't comfortable with. And self-publishing has become kind of a new way to do things, uh, a new kind of avenue open to people who maybe don't want to go the traditional publishing route. But I didn't know a darn thing about self-publishing, and it was kind of intimidating to me and kind of scary. And so I thought, well, I've, I've got this body of work. Uh, let me put this collection of essays together, self-publish that, learn from this kind of small experiment, see how it goes, and if it's successful and if I like the, the product and like the output, uh, this gives me just another avenue for which to develop this larger project. That's kind of consistent with the philosophy that we share with cities about you know, the value of small experiments and the value of incremental steps. And so, you know, so far it's been a great adventure. I've been overwhelmed by the response, and I, I again, kind of thank everybody here for, for tuning in to, uh, to listen to a little bit of it. Let's switch and talk about Strong Towns then itself. And I think it's, it's a body of work that has been evolving. I won't by any stretch say that it is complete or that we have a uh, – you know, a unified thesis in a sense of, of what a strong town's world would be like. But there are a few kind of key observations that I think we've honed and have resonated with a lot of people. The, the first is a contrast between the traditional development pattern and what we call the suburban experiment. Um, we developed as humans across cultures.
cultures, across civilizations, across continents, for literally thousands and thousands of years in a pattern that was very similar. You could go to uh, societies in Europe, you could go to the Fertile Crescent, uh, you could go to Asia, South America, North America, wherever you had human uh, settlement that had grown to any substantial size, the general layout of those places was very similar. Now, the architecture was different, the building materials were different, uh, the culture was certainly different. But when you take those things away and just look kind of at a you know, 30,000 foot down on these places, they had a general basic layout that was very similar. This was, in our modern eyes today, easily explained by the fact that the main mode of getting around was by foot. And so these places were, in a sense, scaled to humans. Uh, when, when we got done with World War II and we were kind of you know, worried about slipping back into depression with the war spending and, and stimulus gone, uh, we embarked on this great suburban experiment, a new way of building, a new way of growing places that had never been tried before anywhere in human history. Uh, certainly, you know, we never piloted it anywhere. We never tried it out on a small scale. We just kind of jumped uh, full bore into building places around this new model, the idea that we could create prosperity and growth and, uh, in, and improve quality of life by scaling places uh, and rescaling places around the automobile. Uh, understanding that difference, understanding that you have one development pattern that literally was a, a trial and error uh, kind of thing where we really built up best practices over thousands and thousands of years versus an experiment where we're literally like learning as we go and the body of knowledge we have is very limited and very young. Having that insight kind of freed us up to look at many, many different things, uh, starting with the financial implications of this experiment. Uh, we're very young into this. We're literally 60 years into this mode of building. And, you know, what are the financial ramifications of it? Uh, in studying this, what we found, in a case study after case study after case study, was that the combination of growth patterns that we had and tax value capture systems that we had uh, just simply didn't make any sense in the long term. Uh, we looked at different developments where the city would uh, have all this infrastructure that they had agreed to maintain and in the very short term would get a lot of cash for that uh, the developer comes in, builds a new development. The city pays very little money for that transaction, but gets all of this new tax base, new growth. Uh, the problem is, uh, as we analyze the numbers, the amount of money that the city would bring in, cumulative over the life cycle of that infrastructure, didn't come anywhere near covering the long-term cost. And we found this again and again and again, where... Uh, either projects that have been paid for by the state and federal government, uh, projects that have been paid for by the DOTs, uh, projects where the city either bonded money or developers came in and, and built infrastructure improvements, that the wealth and prosperity created was very real, uh, but the long-term liabilities were very real as well. And this exchange of near-term wealth and prosperity 
for long-term liability just was an equation that didn't make sense over the long term. One of the key insights then that came out of that uh, discovery and that you know iterative case studies that kind of demonstrated that to us was this notion that we finance the second life cycle of a suburban experiment with debt. Uh, we, we all have kind of struggled nationally to explain, you know, why debt levels are so high, uh, why, you know, families are so indebted, businesses are so indebted, uh, the government is so indebted. And, you know, the narratives that are typically used were very unsatisfying for me and for others. Uh, you know, it's very much too simple to say, well, the government just spends too much or people just spend too much. Uh, or, you know, we're, we're not, uh, we, we need to start making difficult choices. It, it was very unsatisfying. And what we discovered was that really the system of development that we have evolved into or, or adopted in this suburban experiment requires enormous amounts of growth in order to sustain everything. Uh, you literally need, a, when you're making these transactions where you're trading short-term cash benefits for long-term liabilities, the further you get out into that, the further your liabilities, you know, your expense for maintaining all this grows. And the more growth you need uh, to give you that immediate cash hit. It's essentially a, a Ponzi scheme type of financing. You need more Peters to rob to pay the Pauls that you made obligations to in prior years. And so uh, we, we discovered that the way we in the United States kept our rates of growth going uh, was to switch essentially from an economy of savings and investment into an economy based on debt accumulation and using debt in order to keep growth going. And when you look at that, some of these things that we ascribe to maybe nefarious ends uh, or conspiracies like what happened with the housing crisis and on Wall Street uh, suddenly make a lot more sense just from, uh, you know, a societal standpoint. A society that needs growth and needs growth desperately in order to maintain everything uh, will generally find a way to make that happen, at least, uh, you know, until the mechanisms are no longer viable and can no longer be run out. And so we made some very logical choices in this experiment, I think, without really evaluating what we were doing uh, over the long term to continue this cycle of, of prosperity, at least prosperity as we were measuring it in the short term, by taking on enormous amounts of debt to the point where when we got into the third life cycle of the suburban experiment and, and you know, really desperately needed more growth, uh, we actually allowed our financing mechanisms to become predatory. Uh, we actually allowed, uh, you know, the financing of our places to uh, endanger really the middle class experiment in this country, the, the rising middle class and their ability to, uh, to keep their heads above water. And so we're at a point today where the suburban experiment has essentially run its course, uh, but there, there isn't really a logical alternative or an alternative that is kind of you know, rearing its head saying, uh, here is a way we can create prosperity for all, uh, not just for a few, but, you know, we can raise standards of living, we can improve people's lives. Uh, that next uh, development pattern has not really emerged yet. 
And so where we are at today with Strong Towns is trying to identify what that is, uh, what that should look like, and most importantly, how we can start to take the steps to implement that and move towards that uh, in the coming years. Uh, we definitely, I think the trajectory we are on is financially completely unstable uh, and not viable. And I think our great challenge right now is to find something that is while we still have choices and while we can still make conscious decisions about uh, how we want to live, how we want to inhabit the landscape, and how we want to achieve a level of prosperity for, for everybody. So with that introduction, maybe, Bonnie, I'll, I'll turn back to you and we can start to have a deeper conversation. Thanks, Charles. That was a, a terrific introduction and a, a really great overview of the work you've been doing. Um, what I would like to do is, is really turn it over to the, the people on the call and, and everyone that's already submitted these terrific questions. Um, and I'm going to call on first on Chris Rembold. If you're on the call, Chris, uh, you're up with the first question under um, the Strong Towns approach. Chris, are you with us? Yes, hi. So the question I'm referring to is the um, regarding in small towns with private sector development. Do you want to read that out and, and sure, sure. Talk? Thanks, Bonnie. Okay. Thanks, thanks, Chuck. Um, in you know, I live in a small town. I work in a small town in western Massachusetts in, in New England. And in small towns, you know, the private sector uh, you know, development is sporadic at best. And so we see few opportunities, and where funds are limited, we see few opportunities from a governmental sector to actually change the pattern of development that you that you talked about. It's just very, the opportunities are very few and far between. And um, actually on a, on a more regional basis, and, and even national basis, there are so many forces conspiring against us. Um, how can we retrofit the, the strong towns into into a place where they're just there's not a lot of opportunities to do that. Yeah. Well, well thank you. I, I'm, I have a particular soft spot in my heart for small towns in particular. My hometown is 13,500. And when I mentioned I was kind of wrapping this larger story around my hometown, it's, it's that town. It's the city of Brainerd. And I'm very intimate with, uh, you know, the degree that places like that struggle. The suburban experiment has been absolutely devastating to small towns. I mean, it's, it's been hard on large cities, uh, but I feel like large cities have a lot more, kind of like you insinuated, a lot more options for, uh, for, for changing than small towns do because in small towns the opportunities feel like they're far apart. Yeah. I, think there's two, I think there's two kind of immediate things to focus on. Um, the first is the fact that in small towns we tend to focus on and this is true with large cities too, but I think even more so in small towns, we tend to focus on the large project. And the large project kind of sucks the life out of the room. Uh, I can't tell you how many cities that I've worked with that are of that scale, of that size, where the entire mechanisms of the government are essentially based around the next road project or the next sewer project. Um, and because the staff size is small, and because the budgets are small, uh, literally it, it sucks every ounce of energy you have to make one of these projects come to fruition. And, you know, because our narrative has been uh, we build highways, we extend infrastructure, 
uh, we widen streets, and even, you know, in places that have tried to adopt a different model uh, to say, you know, we're going to shrink streets or we're going to add sidewalks or what have you, these projects become overwhelming and, and all-encompassing. I think we need to think more incremental. And I, I, I really am uh, inspired by the work of Mike Lydon at Street Plans Collaborative, and I, I know he was on an earlier conference call. Uh, the idea that uh, small incremental changes really can add up to something great. Uh, I look at and have tried to study what, what, what was development like in generations prior to the suburban experiment uh, and answer the question, how did they decide what a good project was? And what I, what I came to the conclusion of or what I had an insight on was the idea that projects were, in a sense, self-emergent. Um, they did not do the build it and they will come thing that we do today where, you know, a small town will go out and build an industrial park on the edge of town and hope that they can attract business. Uh, they did things very differently. They built in very small increments uh, over, you know, as wide of area as they could. And the need for infrastructure, the need for capital improvements, the need for city spending uh, kind of emerged out of that. Uh, you would get to the point where you would say, wow, we can support, uh, a, a, you know, a paved road through here. <laughs> and, you know, because now we have the tax base here and now we have stuff going on, so we can afford to do this. Uh, I like to point out on a larger scale, you know, we didn't build the Brooklyn Bridge uh, hoping we could create Brooklyn. Uh, Brooklyn was there, and we built the Brooklyn Bridge to create one center of activity, uh, Brooklyn, with another center of activity, Manhattan. And I think that same philosophy applies to our small towns. Uh, we really need to think small, think incremental, and, you know, focus on those changes that, uh, while they may seem, uh, you know, almost trivial today, you know, planting trees uh, along a street, uh, painting some bike lanes, uh, taking vacant lots and cleaning them up, uh, trying to change ordinances so that people can rent their basements or put an apartment in a garage and rent that out. You know, these, these tiny, tiny little things that may not seem like uh, you're, you're making a big difference. When you add those up over a broad spectrum, uh, you start to see livability go up. You start to see quality of life go up. You give people more options. And all of those things in a small town equate to greater value. So that, that would be how I would answer that question. And, and I realize that isn't satisfying often for people because they often want, you know, what is the big solution? You know, what's the thing that we do? Do we build a casino? Do we get a community center? And I'm so down on those approaches. I really have seen so many cities swing for the fences and strike out. And I think small ball, small incremental, uh, will get the job done. Chuck, that's a, a great uh, follow-on to the, this next question. Because um, you're really talking about empowering communities or, or helping communities feel empowered to take on some of this change themselves. And I have a question here from from Sarah from California. I'm, I apologize. I'm going to mangle your last name if you want to take your name off mute. Sarah Shrikti. Um, are you with us today? Do we have you, Sarah? If not, I'll uh, I'll, I'll ask the question for you. Um, her question is: What are the key building blocks for economic stability? But also, how is a community empowered to create? sustainability for its own economy. 
Let me um, let, let me split those. It's two. It's two questions. So let me let me try to answer the first one. And I may be a little too philosophical on this one, and I apologize. But there's a uh, there's a there's a, an excellent book called The Black Swan by a guy named Nicholas Nassim Taleb, and I've learned so much from this book. Uh, he has a new book coming out shortly. Uh, I want to say next month called Anti Fragility, and. The idea is that, you know, we really live in a world where there's a lot of complexity and we've created systems that are very complex and intertwined. And because of that complexity, uh, they've, these systems have become very, very fragile. Uh, he describes a world uh, that we need to move to in which the, uh, the upside is there, but the downside is limited. Uh, let me give a real-world example. Uh, there's a small town here near where I live, uh, 600 people. They went out, and at the prompting of their planner and their economic development advisor and their engineer and their financial advisor, uh, they had projected all of this new growth. And they went out and they built uh, a, a, a developer came to town, and they bonded to assist this developer in putting in water and sewer in a 650-lot subdivision. Now, this is a city of 600, so you were talking about, you know, this thing built out like a tripling of the population. And their idea was, you know, we're going to have all this growth. Uh, we can help the developer finance it, and then we're going to get all this increased tax base, and it's going to be wonderful. Well, the upside of that certainly was wonderful. I mean, if, if all that tax base would have come in, uh, you know, they would have perhaps been better off, although by our analysis they still would have been in a hole in the future, but it would have helped them in the short term. But the downside of that transaction was disastrous because what actually happened is all of the pipe got put in, all the roads and streets and sidewalks got put in, and one house got built. The developer went out of business. Uh, the bank that had financed it went uh, or had insured it went out of business, and the city is literally stuck owning all of the lots and around $7 million of debt, which is just crushing them at a small town level. What we need to do is start thinking about uh, in terms of long-term stability, transactions that still have the upside. In other words, we can still improve the value of our places, but limit our downside. If things don't work out, it's not going to be an absolute disaster. And so, uh, you know, for the second part of that question, uh, we're really talking again about kind of these small-scale kind of things. Uh, you know, the, the whole kind of great thing about Mike Lydon's tactical urbanism approach is that it really relies on the social capital within the community. It relies on people working on their own blocks, on their own neighborhoods, uh, making you know, small-scale improvements that improve their own quality of life. When those are sanctioned by the government, when those are empowered, when they actually can lead to larger-scale changes within the community, all of a sudden now you have projects that are delivered that have automatic buy-in because they originated from the people. They, they didn't have to be uh, studied by some outside consultant and kind of push down people's throats through public hearings or kind of these fake, uh, you know, kind of gatherings we have to explain and sell projects to people. They literally emerge from successes within the community. And, I, I you know, especially in small towns, uh, we need that type of depth of commitment. We need that type of broad... Uh, you know, broad cultivation of ideas 
And, you know, to me, at the end of the day, uh, we need those projects to emerge from that type of framework because they're going to be supported, they're going to be successful, and even when they fail, uh, they're going to be of a size and scope where they're not going to be devastating. And that's really what we need to avoid more than anything else. So these emergent projects are a, are a great idea in, in theory, uh, but I'm going to pick up on a question here by Judith Corbett. Judith, are you on the line? Maybe we don't have her. Um, I'll, I'll read out her question. Um, we serve local elected officials. What can they do to take leadership on this issue? So this idea of having communities drive the change uh, in small towns is is a terrific and, and proven model for for sustainable changes. But how do we engage the leadership and local officials in this change if it's coming direct from the community? I, I think there's two kind of insights that are critical with this. Um, the first is just an acknowledgement that uh, cities cannot solve these problems alone. I mean, we we can't. We're not electing people to go there and solve problems. We're essentially electing people to go there and be decision makers uh, in a process, but we're not necessarily electing problem solvers. Uh, I, I think it's critical, too, that in conjunction with that, we as citizens and we as voters, and I think politicians need to uh, communicate this, have to embrace a level of uh, failure. Uh, there's a saying that Tom Friedman has been passing around, the New York Times columnist, quoting a, a Silicon Valley executive saying, innovation that happens from the top down tends to be orderly but dumb, while innovation that happens from the bottom up tends to be chaotic but smart. If you put that in a government context, uh, we're very, we, we demand uh, as voters, as taxpayers, as citizens and residents in a community, uh, we demand that the government be orderly. Uh, we frown often on projects that fail and things that don't work out, and we throw those politicians out of office. Because of that, our processes, you know, even at the small town level, have become very sclerotic, very uh, defensive, kind of everything's kind of gummed up. We have got to go through all these steps and layers to make sure that, that everything works out just, you know, just right, and there can be no, you know, no blame when the project fails. And what you see is that we get these huge projects out of the process that uh, maybe, you know, are not total failures, but certainly fail uh, to achieve the promise that they are they're given. I think we need a two-way street that embraces failure. And by two-way street, I mean we need politicians who say, look, we're going to try smaller things, and we're going to try 100 small things instead of one big thing. And of those hundred small things, maybe half of them fail. But they're small failures, so they're really not going to cost us that much. And we're going to learn from every single one of those. Uh, and the 50 that are successes, uh, we're going to take those and we're going to expand on them, and we're going to make them even more successful. On the flip side of that, we need the public to embrace that as well and to not look at you know, the city uh, sanctioning someone going out and painting uh, lines on a street uh, or going out and holding a festival and a block party. Uh, we can't look at those as frivolities. We actually have to look at those correctly as experiments in placemaking, experiments in making the community better. And we have to be tolerant of those kind of things because literally 
we're we're kind of relearning uh, things that our forebears and our ancestors understood about making places. Uh, we're relearning them, and we're learning how to kind of retrofit that development model back into our our, our present framework, which is much different than. So, embrace experiment, embrace failure, and I think be open to uh, to uh, that kind of different paradigm, which is a real challenge to us today because it's not how we've been conditioned to look at government. So it sounds to me that there needs to be a whole new type of communication built up between community members and their governments, which is tying into a question from Judith Bang from, I think, from New Hampshire. Judith, are you on the line? Yep. Uh, do you have a great question here about public decision-makers? Do you want to read that out and, and talk to Chuck about it? Oh, I didn't write it down. Why don't you read it for me? Okay. So uh, the note that you've written here is public decision-makers seem to feel that they need to justify their policies and actions with dollars and cents benefits. How do community members argue that other values should be given equal weight without seeming hopelessly idealistic? Perfect. <laughs> Yeah. Just as eloquent as um, you remember. Thank you, uh, Judith. Um, I may not answer this in a way that is very pleasing to you, and, and I'll try to I'll try to temper it with an understanding of where you're coming from. Uh, I've been in so many meetings where you know we, we're trying to do a good project, and the engineer steps up. Uh, or the economic developer, you know, development uh, professional steps in, or the financial person steps in, uh, with some type of statement regarding the growth potential or uh, the need to accommodate a certain level of cars or what have you, and that argument wins the day. Right. And, you know, that is very frustrating for people who are trying to build places around a different paradigm, you know, quality of life, uh, quality of place, Here's the key insight from Strong Towns, and, and this is, I, I think, really why uh, our work has gained as much interest as it, as it has. Kind of to my surprise, this wasn't really the target group I was aiming for. Uh, what we have found is that that standard model that we use today, where we focus on the volume of cars that we can move, uh, the amount of daily traffic, travel time, uh, where we focus on how many jobs we can create by bringing in a business and subsidizing them, those transactions all fare really, really terribly financially when compared to the traditional development model. Uh, I'll give you a, an example that I really like from my hometown that kind of crystallizes this. Uh, we have uh, a, a commercial strip in town adjacent to a historic neighborhood. And the, the commercial area had two blocks, that were built in the traditional style, the buildings right up to the property line, uh, you know, zero lot setback between buildings, uh, the flat front facade, um, nice, you know, retail space along the street. The only problem with the two blocks was that they were terribly run down. The city had built a huge highway right out in front of them, um, you know, completely disconnected the adjacent neighborhoods by taking out the sidewalks over time. And these places had just kind of wilted to the point where, you know, there were meth labs in there and, you know, a bunch of abandoned places, just nasty, nasty kind of block. So 
the city plans call for this block to be torn down and rebuilt with what they've called auto-oriented style of development. Uh, and, in fact, one of the blocks uh, was there was a big project that was done where a developer came in, bought the whole lot, uh, whole block, tore all the buildings down, and built a drive-through taco restaurant. Now, this was just everybody embraced this project. They said this is the greatest project. Uh, we're cleaning up this terrible blighted block. Uh, everybody was on board. The economic development people uh, were completely on board. The engineer was on board. We had the Complete Streets Coalition were happy because they put in sidewalks. Uh, the um, the planning department thought this was fantastic. The environmental people even thought this was great because they took this blighted block and now it had uh, two stormwater ponds with natural plantings in it. Here's the problem. Uh, the old and blighted block, uh, the, the stuff they tore down, when you added up all the property values, uh, had a total value of $1.1 million. The new drive through taco restaurant, the same exact site, the same exact location, had a total value of only 800000 It was actually 40% less in value. So, you know, when, when I went, you know, when I went to them and said, look, you know, we should be doing this differently, uh, the answer was, well, you know, what do we do, Chuck? And, and to me, we can take that old block, that just like completely neglected, run-down, decrepit block, give it a tiny bit of love. You know, at its very run-down and most decrepit, it still is worth 40% more than the brand-new suburban-style block that everybody was going after. Uh, if we just showed it a little bit of love, tamed that highway a little bit, swept the sidewalks, fixed up the front facades maybe a little bit, uh, over time connected the neighborhood. Heck, if we just went out and took some of the wide streets and painted some bike lanes on it and allowed people other options to get someplace besides getting in their car, uh, we could increase the value of that traditional block immensely. And, you know, and that is starting from a base that was 40% higher than what we ultimately got in the other place. So at the end of the day, I think we do, uh, if we're interested in placemaking, if we're interested in building quality environments for people to live in, if we're interested in making our communities more livable, uh, we need to talk dollars and cents because literally we have the winning argument when it comes to that. Without question, the most productive places are those places that are built on the traditional development pattern. Uh, it's, not even, it's not even close. Great. Thanks, Chuck. So while we're on the, the dollars and cents, there's a great question um, that has no owner um, that's been listed as anonymous. Um, but just to dig into the state and federal funding uh, opportunities as well. So I'll read this out. Um, and I think there's someone down a little further in the document, Stephen Beck from Vermont. You have a, a similar question. So if you want to jump off mute and, and have a chat, um, please do so. I'll just um, I'll paraphrase this question now. In an effort to support local communities, state government often acts as a convener and a funder of economic development activities. In a big way, reduced revenues, both federal and state, are currently on the horizon for all local governments. How can state government continue to be a key supporter of local development efforts, creating jobs, improving the state's economy, et cetera, without playing the role of sugar daddy? What do you got first, Chuck? I, I, there's, a, there's a lot 
in that, and I think I, I think I would like to take it in in two different directions. I, I'm going to start first with something they're doing right now in the state of Florida. Uh, the state of Florida has uh, the tr- all the traditional economic development programs. They've got the business subsidies. They've got the tax credits. They've got the investments in industrial parks that they do. Uh, they've got the um, some grants that they give to cities to build infrastructure and to, you know, fix up dilapidated buildings, brownfield redevelopment. They, they have, like, every program that you would look at that, you know, most states have that they would call economic development. They also, in the last few years, have added, and it's a very tiny, tiny fraction of their budget. I want to say it's like $2 million a year, which is, you know, less than 1% of their overall economic development budget. They've adopted the economic gardening approach that was pioneered in Littleton, Colorado. Uh, this is an absolutely brilliant approach. It turns uh, the whole economic development paradigm on its head by instead of focusing on what can we do to subsidize businesses, what can we do uh, to kind of be the sugar daddy, like the question is to bring in economic development, uh, what can we do to instead cultivate business growth within communities? Instead of importing that one business that creates 50 jobs, how can we take 50 businesses that we have and grow one job each? The implications of that being, you know, a far more resilient, far more dynamic economy at the end of the day. Here's the cool thing about the Florida approach. When compared and contrasted with the 99-plus percent of the budget, uh, the economic gardening approach is creating more jobs, uh, higher-paying jobs, more dynamic jobs, and having more spin-off, like secondary jobs created from those jobs than the entire rest of the economic development budget combined. I think that the role of the state and the role of the federal government, I mean, obviously it is shrinking, and it is certainly not going to be able to keep up with uh, the demands that local governments have uh, to, for, for growth to stay solvent. Uh, so we're going to have to make other plans at the local level. But I think the role of the, uh, the federal and state governments can really be conveners of the, basically developing different approaches, local experimentation. And I'm kind of working on a system uh, where uh, – and I'll, I'll kind of preview this, although we're still working on it and trying to roll it out so it's still conceptual. But the idea is that, you know, we have in Minnesota here 860, 854 different cities. I would like to see 854 different models of development and models of growth and models of, uh, you know, economic, uh, creating economic opportunity at the local level instead of literally the one we have today. And I would like to study those 854 different models. And I think the state can do a really good job of sharing uh, successes from, you know, the top 10% uh, with the places in the bottom 10% that struggle. I think the key to the next generation of, of innovation and success at the government level is going to, become, is going to come from uh, embracing those experiments, embracing that innovation, and then using this awesome power we have today of being able to communicate and kind of you know, teach each other in these networks that really grow up kind of spontaneously where we can learn from each other's successes and learn from each other's failures. And I think if we become slightly less parochial, 
from the, the state and, and federal level uh, and, and loosen up these local mayors and local councils and local communities to experiment and try different things. Uh, we will have failures, uh, but, but you know, the, the role of those levels of government should be to learn from the failures uh, and spread around the successes. Uh, I also, well, yeah, let me, let me just end with that. I think maybe that's kind of the best way to frame this whole thing. So you mentioned uh, some new technologies that are playing a role in helping to educate. What what other um, outcomes do you see in in using these new technologies for this kind of work? Well, uh, really, I you know we have had a revolution akin to Gutenberg and the printing press. Uh, you know, in the last. 15 years in terms of our ability to communicate. I mean, we, we are living proof of that right now, the fact that I'm sitting at my home in central Minnesota uh, communicating, you know, with 100-plus people uh, on the phone from all over the country is, you know, a mind-blowing thing that, you know, my grandparents would have had, <laughs> would have had no, you know, no way to even project that that was going to happen. So we have these communication tools, and really our government and our system of innovation have really, on the government side, have not caught up to that. Uh, there is an enormous capacity that we have through just like free social media outlets. You know, we're not talking about having to invent whole new platforms and whole new systems, uh, but literally with Google Map technology, uh, the ability to, to overlay dialogues and overlay conversations uh, in geographic spaces, uh, the ability to kind of, uh, you know, across uh, different socioeconomic groups have these kind of ongoing dialogues. Uh, I think it kind of redefines everything. Uh, we were having a chat this morning uh, with a couple of people I'm, I'm working on some innovative things with about the future of comprehensive planning. Comprehensive planning right now today at the city level is a document we put together every you know, five years if we're really progressive, uh, but usually every 10 years or so, and it gets put into a three-ring binder and put on the shelf. And the, the constant lament of planners uh, and, and planning professionals and city officials is that, you know, once the document's done, nobody reads it. It doesn't get implemented. It's not, an, a, you know, an organic part of our life. I think that we're reaching a point where comprehensive plans should never be a document on a shelf, but should literally be, you know, a, a website uh, where the framework and the dialogue and the conversation just continues to grow and build, uh, where, you know, all of those kind of block-level things can aggregate into neighborhood-level things, which can, you know, aggregate into city-level conversations. Uh, I think we have the ability to do those things today, and we're just starting to tap into them and figure them out. But when we do, uh, it's going to be incredibly powerful. I, I do think that we are, you know, at one of those historical moments in history uh, that is a real inflection point in terms of our ability to communicate uh, that will be in the history books, you know, a, a millennia from now. I wonder, uh, David Eggleton, are you on the line? Um, there's a great question here from you uh, talking about motivation, uh, and I wonder if some of these new technologies and the way people are using them plays into the answer of your question. Do you want to take yourself off mute and, and join us for a sec?
Maybe we've lost them. The question was, what has motivated the people who shifted some of their bets to the locals? Um, so, I wonder, uh, Charles, if you can if you can give us some more information about the motivations that you see um, in in local businesses and local governments for shifting to uh, local development. Um, and if any of the, the technologies that you mentioned or um, any of these new techniques for communication are playing into that. Let me give you a, a, a kind of a larger construct that I see going on. Um, and a little bit was touched on in the debate last night. And I, I was very kind of frustrated because, I, I, you know, I think we probably all are maybe to a degree that some of the questions that we want to see asked are not being asked and answered and discussed, you know, at, not just at that level, but at all levels. Um, you know, we right now are having this huge national dialogue about how do we create jobs? How do we create jobs at the local level? And specifically, you know, how do we create high-paying, high-wage jobs? And there's this notion that, you know, manufacturing is the answer. Like if we can somehow re-import these manufactured jobs that got sent out, uh, that that will be the answer. And there's an important economic thing going on right now. Um, and I'll find the, there's, a, there's a couple books I've read on this. There's one that I finished up uh, last month called Currency Wars. And I would, I would strongly recommend it to anyone because it talks about uh, the fluctuations of national currencies and how that impacts essentially local economic development or, you know, job situations, and how over the last 100 years we've really had a number of these kind of changes in our currency policy that have affected the flow of capital across borders. One of the things that you see going on right now is that, you know, with the active printing of money by the Federal Reserve is you see the value of the dollar starting to decline relative to other currencies. In the you know immediate effect, what that does is it makes uh, goods more expensive here. It makes you know oils traded in dollars. If the dollar is worth less than it was, it takes more dollars to buy the same amount of oil. Uh, oil is obviously you know a huge component of anything that needs to be transported, especially across you know long distances like from China. And so what you're seeing is like the slow rising of prices. And the rising of prices, uh, while it hurts families and it hurts businesses, has kind of perverse advantage of making local production of those same things uh, more competitive. If it costs now twice as much to import something, uh, we have an incredibly productive workforce, uh, an incredibly you know uh, productive economy, and all of a sudden now it's competitive for us to start to produce some of those things here. I do think that part of what you're seeing uh, in the local ag movement, for example, uh, is not just a desire to have better tasting food, although that's a, a happy byproduct, and not just you know a desire to support local resilient agriculture, which I, I also think is a, a worthy objective. But what you're seeing is that you know locally produced food is actually price competitive. Uh, with food that is is being imported from far-flung reaches of the earth. And so, you know, I, I think as our economy continues to evolve, as we, um, 
you know, I think economically change our competitive structure through some of these devaluations. Uh, you're going to see that not only in the food production sector, but also in other sectors, uh, you know, furniture construction, uh, textiles, uh, a, a lot of the traditional things that we've offshored, I think, uh, will come back. You also have higher prices, and that's kind of, you know, the balance uh, that I think is naturally, um, we're in a sense evolving to. That's not necessarily a happy narrative, uh, but it's does say that, you know, it's a complex equation that is going to have both positive and negatives as we uh, kind of continue to move to what really is a brand new economic structure in this country, a post-suburban experiment uh, way of generating wealth and prosperity. Fantastic. Thank you, Chuck. We've got a few minutes left for the call today, and I wanted to throw open um, to to everyone on the call to see if there's anyone that would like to ask a question. If you if you do have questions that aren't captured in the doc, please um, take your take yourself off mute right now and and try and get in first for uh, a question. We have time for one, maybe two. Can hear someone scrambling. Uh, Rick Line, uh, Hunter, Colorado. Uh, Chuck, you know, you, you brought up the presidential debate and everybody, you know, boy, this is deciding point. You know, uh, we, if we go with Romney versus uh, Obama, does it make that big of a difference or is it controlled by Congress? I, I would actually add a third choice uh, to your question if I could. I actually wrote today, last night after the debate, um, you know, we publish our blog Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and I had a blog piece I was going to run today, and, and I'd, after the debate I decided this was so dissatisfying to me that I wanted to write out the questions that I would actually like to see asked. And so on our blog today at strongtowns.org, uh, you'll see 21 questions that I actually think are more relevant to you know what is going on today in this country than, than the ones that you know we seem to be having as part of our conversation. One of those questions is this: uh, you know, which is which is going to be more important in terms of creating jobs, America's next president or America's next mayors? And I actually think it's the latter. It is the mayors. Uh, that are going to drive at the local level, local innovation, local job creation, local economic development opportunities, uh, and they're going to, do, you know, they're going to do that out of necessity because literally it's going to be that, or it's going to be, you know, a, a dramatic decline in the quality of life. And, and I think those places uh, will see, you know, continued falls, decreases in population, uh, di increasing out migration, and I, I think in order to be competitive. Uh, we're going to see, you know, people step up at the mayoral level, uh, and, and you know, and city council, just local leaders in general, I think, are going to become far more important to the future uh, prosperity of this country than anything that's going to happen uh, in Washington D.C. Great question, thanks, Rick. Do we have anyone else that has a, a question they'd like to throw to Chuck before we wrap up today? Yeah, I've got a this is, Matthew, this is Matthew Tester in Atlanta. Hi, Matthew. Go ahead. I was wondering if property taxation was one of the planks in the strong town's approach 
I'm asking because I'm really interested in land value taxation and split rate taxation, and despite its pained history, it seems like a really powerful tool for efficient land use and productive uh, models of development. And so I'm just curious as to whether that's something that you, you had explored. Absolutely. Uh, if you look at where our cities are at today, essentially 60 years into this suburban experiment, uh, they are either bankrupt, uh, you know, sliding into bankruptcy, or functionally insolvent. And by functionally insolvent, I, I really mean when you line up the future revenues and you line up the future liabilities, the future liabilities dwarf the future revenues. The one thing that we need at the local level more than anything else is investments in productive land use. We need our, the value of our communities to increase far more radically and dramatically than the liabilities. And in fact, you know, as unpalatable as it may be, uh, we actually believe that uh, we're going to be talking at the local level about contraction uh, over the next 30 years. You know, uh, in a sense, it, it, to put a happy spin on it, how do we prune the rosebush back so that ultimately grows back is, is strong and resilient and very productive? In that framework, the most destructive tax system that we can have is the property tax. I can't tell you how many projects I've been on uh, where we've gone in and designed an improvement that will make the properties more valuable, uh, enhance the productivity, uh, you know, and the return on investment of the publics, and, and, and we get the property owner show up saying, look, you know, I got this rental piece of property, uh, or I got this parking lot, uh, or I got this site with a billboard on it, it cash flows just fine now. I don't want you to improve the value of my property because if you improve the value of my property, I'm going to pay more taxes. I don't want that at all. Uh, and literally, we have a tax system in the property tax that punishes people that invest in their property by paying more taxes. If you look at two adjacent lots you know, here in Minnesota, I realize in Atlanta you don't have the snowfall that we do, but I like to use this example. You know, we got two lots next to each other, one with a nice building and one with a parking lot. The parking lot has got a billboard on it. Uh, they charge for parking. They charge for the billboard. Uh, you know, they're making money just fine. But the value of that land or the value of that improvement is very nominal when compared to the building that's next door. The building that's next door pays tons of tax, you know, pays a vastly more taxes than that unproductive lot. Yet, that unproductive lot has the same amount of sewer, the same amount of water, the same amount of sidewalk, the same amount of street. And when the snowplow goes by in the winter, it's not like they pick up the blade when they reach the parking lot. Uh, you know, it is costing the city the same amount of money, but producing enormous amounts less in, in revenue. And there is a huge resistance to doing anything that would change that. The land value tax changes that on its head. It, it flips it completely over. And what it says is that we want people to invest in their property. We want people to make the most productive land use that they can, and we will not punish you for doing that. Uh, the only way you really fail in a land tax system as a property owner is if you choose to do nothing with property or hold on to it or hoard it or not put it to productive use. We absolutely need, at the local level, all properties to be put to productive use. And so, yeah, I... I would be a strong advocate for a land tax being 
part of the toolbox at the very least, if not a big part of the solution. Fantastic. Thanks, Jeff. So we're we're coming up to the top of the hour again, which means it's time for us to start wrapping up. I know there are still a lot of questions that are looking for answers in the Google Doc, and I would ask everyone that's on the call today to go back in there and, and have a crack at, at some answers, uh, adding some links or case studies that, that you'd like to share. Um, we will make that document available to everyone on the call uh, and downloadable from the web. So uh, if you do have the time, please go in and, um, and make as many comments and notes as you can so that that's a really great, rich document for everyone to share. Before we wrap up, I'd just like to hand over quickly to uh, Rebecca from the Orton Family Foundation for a couple of comments. Great. Thanks so much, Bonnie, and thanks, Chuck, for this amazing afternoon with this spread. Um, what a great way to follow up the presidential debate last night and give everyone something to think about. Um, I just wanted to make a quick announcement, actually two quick announcements. So for all of you who are joining us for the first time or if you're regular callers in, we have two more conference calls in 2012. I hope you'll visit our website and sign up. Next month we are going to be talking about open streets, some of the kinds of improvements Chuck was talking about today. And in December we're going to be talking about how to engage first audiences and voices. And the final announcement, many of you may be aware that the Community Matters Partnership, of which Chuck and John Towns are one member, has taken on a project this year called the Citizens Institute on Rural Design. It's a great federal program that brings design and technical assistance to rural communities and small towns that are struggling with a lot of the issues that came up on the call today. We're going to be putting out more information on that within the next month, so I'd encourage you all to stay tuned. If you think that might be helpful to you, be in touch, and we would love to have many of you apply to have faculty, possibly even Chuck, come to your town and see how they could help out. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Becca. Uh, on behalf of everyone on the call today, I'd like to express a huge thanks to Mr. Chuck Maroon for your time today and sharing all your great insight. Um, I'm sure, like everyone on the call, we're, we're looking forward to reading the new book and uh, wish you the very best of luck with that. Uh, and I, I'd just like to ask Chuck if you have a final closing comment for, for everyone on the call. If there's one takeaway for them to to go away and think about tonight uh, or or wake up first thing tomorrow morning if they want to get something done and have a burning desire to, to go do something, what, what would you recommend people think about and, and get started on immediately? I think that we just have to focus on the small increments and making sure that at the local level everything we do adds value, adds real measurable value that improves the quality of life for people, improves the livability of our places, and improves the uh, the actual financial, measurable financial value of our neighborhoods. Uh, it's not about moving cars. It's not about, you know, getting from one place to the other. It's about the actual value. And if we do that, uh, we'll get back to building fantastic places. We'll get back to building strong towns. Fantastic. Thank you so much. So and much. Uh, yeah, thank you. And to everyone on the call, thank you for taking the time, and uh, we hope to hear from you again on one of the, the last calls of the year. Um, have a great afternoon, everyone. Thanks a lot. Thank you.